today on Legalese. We are going to be talking about how the gun control movement is going supervillain in a soon-to-be-published article written for the Notre Dame Law Review advocating a de jure abuse of the police powers by utilizing a de facto abuse of the police powers to use the state's monopoly on the use of force to violate your constitutionally protected natural and individual right to keep and bear arms in an upcoming article entitled Qualified Immunity as Gun Control, which I am just going to assume was a ripoff of my awesome article, Gun Rights as Criminal Justice Reform, even though I have absolutely nothing to base that assumption on and is almost certainly not correct, uh, that's not going to stop me from assuming these guys are a couple of title-stealing sons of bitches. Oh, hey, fuck you. Hey, greetings, everybody, and welcome back once again to Legalese. As always, I am your host, Bob, and I want to thank you so much for joining me here today. Now, if you happen to be new to my channel, let me especially welcome you. Uh, this is a place where we're going to be discussing all things constitutional law, as well as current events in other areas of law, politics, and culture. Now, real quick, I just want to let you guys know that I, I know it's been a while since I put a new video out. I have been very busy, uh, and... Uh, that is going to be continuing here for a few more weeks, so it's likely you won't see another video after this one for a few weeks. But I just wanted to let you guys know that uh, I am still writing and publishing articles over uh, on Substack, so if you are uh, missing my material, I, I would highly recommend you guys go to LegalEaseShow.com, and there you can sign up for my newsletter. And that will uh, let you guys know and uh, give you a notification anytime I post any new content, uh, whether that is an article on Substack or a video on YouTube or a podcast episode on Spotify. Uh, you will get notifications about all of those uh, sent conveniently right to your inbox. So uh, please take a moment and go over to LegalEaseShow.com so you can continue getting your fix of me uh, for the next couple of weeks while I am busy doing other things. Well, let's get to the topic for today here, I suppose. This is the article that we are going to be discussing. Uh, it is written by uh, law professors Guha Krishnamurti and Peter N. Salib, and it makes one of the most evil and admittedly most brilliant calls ever to further a gun control agenda by using the decidedly unconstitutional, and I would say arguably downright un-American doctrine of qualified immunity dreamt up whole cloth by the Supreme Court in 1982, as well as employing the conservative veneration for police to commit what these authors very openly admit will be a flagrant and intentional violation of your individual liberties. So as you can see, the article begins by talking about how the Supreme Court's ruling in New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin threw the political project of gun regulation into question. Before Bruin, states could enact new kinds of gun restrictions if they passed a relatively stringent means-ends test. 
That is to say, if laws meaningfully reduce danger while not too heavily burdening the right to self-defense, they were allowed. After Bruin, only gun control actually enforced in the founding era and their close analogs are permissible. Many fewer regulations will now pass the constitutional test. Now, while this article is, uh, as I you know, really sort of admitted, is, uh, I think, an incredibly uh, clever uh, discussion or idea here, uh, one thing that we can already see it demonstrating is the seemingly inescapable attribute that you will find with any call for gun control, and that is that they always foster a general air of ignorance that is impossible to ignore. And this article, despite being brilliant, has still got gun control stupid in spades. So, they claim that before Bruin, gun control laws were challenged by applying a means-ends test. Now, this is something known as judicial scrutiny. Uh, now, judicial scrutiny is a very complex and complicated topic rooted in 14th Amendment jurisprudence. Now, if you guys would be interested in a future video focusing on the history and purpose of judicial scrutiny, let me know in the comment section. Uh, though for now, I think it will uh, suffice to say that when uh, the constitutional constitutionality of a law is challenged, the court will apply, and this is what judicial scrutiny essentially is, uh, one of three standards of scrutiny to analyze the law and its effect. So the highest standard is called strict scrutiny. Below that is intermediate scrutiny. And the lowest standard is called rational basis review. Now, strict scrutiny is applied when the law being challenged discriminates against a suspect classification or burdens a fundamental right. Intermediate scrutiny applies to a quasi-suspect classification and unenumerated rights. And these two tiers constitute what is known as heightened scrutiny because the strict and intermediate scrutiny always puts the burden of proof on the government. Now, on the other hand, rational basis review determines the constitutionality of any statute or ordinance not otherwise subject to heightened scrutiny. Under rational basis review, the court simply asks whether a law in question is rationally related to a legitimate government interest, and this can even include entirely hypothetical speculations about the mere possibility of a potential government interest, even if the parties in the case don't bring it up. If the judges themselves can find their own reason, they uphold the law. And here, the burden of proof will lie with the challenger uh, to demonstrate that this law serves no conceivable government interest. Now, later in this article, the authors elaborate on their understanding of how this gun control and judicial scrutiny worked uh, by pointing out that after Heller and McDonald, the courts reviewed gun control laws under what they call a transubstantive constitutional standard of strict and intermediate scrutiny. 
and that under both highly tailored laws that stood to significantly reduce loss of life and limb would be upheld. And this means that as death rates from gun homicides and suicides rose, these authors claimed that regulators could try new approaches to saving lives. Now, it really is incredible just how many things these two law professors got wrong in such a short passage as the one we just read. First of all, there is no such thing as transubstantive constitutional standards. For this to be true, you would have to accept the idea that a single law can be applied to two entirely different and even contradictory standards at the same time. But this article has much bigger problems than his inability to delineate between these two standards that he claims are relevant to this case, because the real big issue here, uh, the biggest problem, is that none of these standards are relevant to the case. And that is because, despite the author's repeated claims that the standard approach before Bruin was a means and test consistent with heightened scrutiny rooted in Heller's precedent, that claim is purely a fantasy. Now, in the majority opinion in Heller, penned by Justice Scalia, as well as the lone dissent of Justice Stephen Breyer, both judges explicitly state that the court chose to decline Dick Heller's request to apply a strict scrutiny standard. In fact, both justices point out that the majority chose not to apply any standard of judicial scrutiny and that this was done deliberately. And so, despite what these authors say, Bruin changed nothing, except it corrected what was a very often very intentional misinterpretation of the Heller and McDonald precedent that was creating a split in the lower courts. Now, moving along in the article, they go on to say that here we suggest an unlikely source of continuing power after Bruin for states to disarm individuals that they deem dangerous, that is qualified immunity. They say qualified immunity shields state officers from monetary liability for many constitutional violations, and in short, unless a previous case is clearly established with a high factual particularity that the officer's conduct was unconstitutional, the officer does not pay. Thus, a state law enforcement officer may, after Bruin, confiscate an individual's firearm if the officer deems that person too dangerous to possess it. They say that that officer's justification may conflict with the federal court's understanding of Bruin or even the Second Amendment itself and perhaps even flagrantly. But unless a previous authoritative legal decision examining near-identical facts says so, the officer will risk no liability. And because each individual act of disarmament will be unique, such prior decisions will be vanishingly rare. They say the result will be a surprisingly free hand for states to determine who should and should not be armed 
even in contravention of the Supreme Court's dictates. Now, I admittedly uh, find myself here still struggling to decide whether the most striking part of this article is the rank hypocrisy or the article's willingness to take every gun control argument and say the quiet part loud and the loud part quiet. Oops, I said the quiet part loud and the loud part quiet. Oh dear. So this article goes on to talk about how proponents of gun rights who skew conservative may see this as lawlessness. In the past, there have been liberals and civil libertarians who have seen qualified immunity that way. Here, as elsewhere in the law, what's good sauce for the goose is good for the gander. Gun rights advocates may therefore either accept qualified immunity's implications for their preferred rights or join with their usual adversaries in opposing it everywhere. Now, this was a real eye-opener for me, because for a long time I had been under the distinct impression that there were two views of the existence of qualified immunity, the first one being the more libertarian view, which I would ascribe to this as qualified immunity, is a flagrant violation of civil liberties that has no constitutional, legal, or moral justification, and as such, should not exist. Now, the more conservative view that says qualified immunity is an important legal doctrine to have in place to make sure police can continue doing their jobs without being burdened constantly by facing civil liabilities for doing so uh, is generally seen as a fairly conservative position. Now, while I strongly disagree with the latter view, at least I can understand its underlying logic, which is hard to do with this third category of people that is being proposed here in this article. Because it really is hard to believe that there is a third group of people who believe that qualified immunity is akin to Schrodinger's cat, existing in a state of superposition where it is both moral and immoral at the same time until the moment we open the hypothetical box and measure this doctrine based on whom the policy harms at the moment of measurement. So, even if we set aside the morally inexcusable position being taken by these authors that anyone who has a difference of opinion with gun control advocates deserves to be robbed of their civil liberties, the complete lack of sense remains in the glaringly obvious fact that the civil libertarians who are committed to ending qualified immunity are also committed to protecting gun rights in equal measure. So, by advocating unlawful gun confiscation, these authors necessarily harm their allies in a fight to end qualified immunity, who, even by these authors' own twisted logic of morality, have not committed the cardinal sin of disagreeing with the left about their personal opinions of public policy. Now, this is not even to mention the fact that a 2020 survey conducted by the Pew Research Center 
found that nearly half of all self-identified Republicans, uh, 45% to be exact, say civilians need to have the power to sue police officers to hold them accountable for misconduct and excessive use of force, even if that makes the officer's job more difficult. And how about the 59% of liberals and Democrats who, according to a different uh, Pew Research poll, say that they personally own at least one firearm? These are significant sections of the population who are already committed allies in the fight to end qualified immunity who would be substantially harmed through the employment of this policy that says gun owners deserve to be robbed of their civil liberties because they oppose an end to qualified immunity. And, ideologically speaking, too, we need to remember that 28% of liberals believe that the right to carry a gun in public for lawful purposes is an individual right and not a carrot to attach to the end of your stick of social engineering. Now, my feelings towards this particular proposal really, in some ways, are very similar to the way I felt about SB8. Uh, this was, uh, we talked about this a lot on the show when it was more relevant, this was Texas's fetal heartbeat bill. Uh, we discussed that in a number of videos, I wrote a number of articles on it, and uh, while I wholly disagreed with the objective of that proposal, and this holds true with this proposal as well. Uh, what I find is it has a certain evil brilliance I can't help but admire, at least just a little bit. I mean, the fact is, I am always amazed at how often I will see a vehicle that will have a thin blue line bumper sticker, and right on the same vehicle, it will also have a come and take it bumper sticker. I see this, and I'm simply left shaking my head quietly, asking myself, who the hell do you think is going to come and take it? Because the obvious answer is it's going to be the thin blue line people. And so, despite the reprehensible nature of supporting a legal doctrine like qualified immunity, who these authors recognize is intrinsically unjust, as long as it is used to harm people they disagree with, I, I think it's only fair to uh, give the authors of this article credit for what is really a very clever use of Saul Alinsky's rule of always holding the other side to their own standards. But this admiration is ever fleeting and always seems to disappear as soon as I continue reading on in the article. So further in the article, they go on to talk about how the net result, many worry, is that modern lawmakers will be shackled to the regulations of the distant past. They will be able to restrict gun ownership and use more or less exclusively as they were restricted in the 18th century. And since the 18th century was an era of single-shot muzzle loaders, fewer gun homicides, and lower state capacity, the list of permissible restrictions will be short indeed. Thus, Many have predicted that Bruin will hamstring lawmakers' ability to prevent even the most predictable modern tragedies.
Now, this seems to be reinvigorating a particular gun control fallacy that I had actually come to believe was beginning to finally sort of be cast out of the uh, gun control talking points for the sheer imbecility of the thing. And that is the claim that the Second Amendment may have been a valid right to protect back in 1791 when the Second Amendment was given legal force. But even if that were true, by now, it has become a relic. And it makes no sense to continue to recognize this relic. It's like I'm a relic, a Ross relic from another time, you know? Because obviously, natural rights are contingent upon artificial circumstances, or at least, I suppose, uh, this article would theorize. It's as though our civil liberties should get the same treatment we give people who continue to wear white after Labor Day. Furthermore, our rights are not contingent on technology. The Second Amendment does not protect a right to own a single-shot, smooth-bore, muzzle-loading musket. It protects a right to keep and bear arms. Now, in 1791, that meant muskets because they were the common firearm of their time. Today, it protects AR-15s because they are the common firearm of our time. And in a few years, it will protect the Moonraker laser rifle because they are awesome and will become the common firearm of their own time. But I digress. So, moving on. Uh, after all, uh, really, would anyone argue that your individual right to be free from unreasonable searches and seizures is hopelessly outdated because back then they were searching carriages, but today they are searching the technologically advanced means of conveyance that we know as the modern automobile. After all, internal combustion engines go much faster, use energy far more efficiently than the animals who put the literal horse in horsepower, and Modern mass productions, easy customization options, and endless supply of replaceable parts on demand create all sorts of opportunities for car owners to create hiding spots where a person could stash a gun or any other contraband. Now, the one thing this article gets absolutely right is the part where it mentions, uh, this is a direct quote, the list of permissible restrictions will be short indeed. Thus, Many have predicted that Bruin will hamstring lawmakers, end quote. Yeah, that's the fucking point. This has nothing to do with magazine capacity or the homicide rate and how anyone could draw that distinction personally I find baffling. The reason so few restrictions can be found when Bruin's framework of text, history, and tradition is applied is because this was at a time when people still understood what an individual right was. And perhaps even more importantly, they understood there was a vast difference between the conception of negative liberties that are employed in the Bill of Rights as opposed to the people today who have uh, erroneously come to assume that because they prefer a positive rights model in which all we have exists solely as a gift to the people by their government, contingent on good behavior, 
that must be the system that we have and that we have always had. But that is simply not the case because, as I've talked about here many, many times, first come rights, then comes government. And additionally, the Second Amendment has nothing to do with the conditions under which a citizen may own guns or what kind of guns an individual may own. This is because the Constitution is not the law that governs us. It is the law that governs those who govern us. And so, we have put the exercise of this right completely outside the scope of Congress's control and beyond restriction, limitation, or regulation through any valid employment of the democratic process. Now, this article goes on further here at this point to explain how exactly it's going to implement this gun control. And what they say is, the reason is qualified immunity. Qualified immunity is a doctrine shielding state officers from monetary liability for violating constitutional rights. It operates as a kind of clear warning rule, and under qualified immunity, a plaintiff may not recover damages from a state official unless a prior authoritative judicial holding clearly established that the officer's conduct was unconstitutional. And the audacity of that statement would be genuinely impressive if it weren't so completely infuriating. Now, here they have clearly dropped all pretense of using the police as a kind of de facto regulation that merely gives them the power to, as they say, regulate guns to the same degree that they want you to believe they were able to do prior to the Bruin decision. But this here is a complete mask-off recognition that what they want to do to you is an unquestionable violation of your rights. They state as much. They understand that what they are doing is advocating for a police state in which the government has a free hand to, to flagrantly violate your individual rights. And they follow this by citing a particular criminal law and state regulation under Texas law that are relevant to uh, a gun control case that they discuss in this article out of the Fifth Circuit that they are using as a prime example of how Bruin is ruining their ability to further infringe our rights. However, a simple reading of their explanation of the nature and meaning of these laws followed by a simple textual analysis of the laws themselves will demonstrate that their explanation is so disastrously beyond what anyone could reasonably infer. So going back to their article, they talk about how the Fifth Circuit case, and this case is known as United States v. Uh, Rahimi. This is a 2023 case out of the Fifth Circuit. Uh, I will have a link to this case uh, on the show notes page. Anyway, so they say the Fifth Circuit case arose in Texas under the Texas Code of Criminal Procedure, Article 14.03, and the Texas Government Code, Section 411.207. For example, they say a police officer may disarm any individual when the officer, quote, reasonably believes it is necessary for the protection of the individual, officer, or another individual, end quote. But 
how does that interpretation of the law stack up against the text of the law itself? Let's find out. So going to the Texas Code of Criminal Procedure, Article 1403, they say that any peace officer may arrest without warrant a peace officer who is acting in the lawful discharge of the officer's official duties may disarm a person at any time the officer reasonably believes it is necessary for the protection of the person, officer, or another individual. Now, that is the part that they just quoted. What they leave out is this next part here that says, the peace officer shall return the handgun to the person before discharging the person from the scene of if the officer determines that the person is not a threat to the officer, person, or another individual. And if the person has not committed a violation that will result in the arrest of that person. Now, that same law goes on to give uh, another time where a police officer may arrest without warrant. And it says a peace officer who is acting in the lawful discharge of the officer's official duties may temporarily disarm a person when that person enters a non-public secure portion of a law enforcement facility. If the law enforcement agency provides a gun locker or other secure area where the peace officer can secure the person's handgun, the peace officer shall secure the handgun in the locker or other secure area and shall return the handgun to the person immediately after the person leaves the non-public secure portion of the law enforcement facility. And the, the law, I don't think I added this here, but the law goes on to say the four purposes of this subsection, law enforcement facility and non-public secure uh, portion of law enforcement facility have the meaning assigned under section 411.207 of the government code. So the plain meaning of this law to me seems pretty crystal clear. An officer may disarm a citizen during such periods of detainment, but they must return the firearm before the end of the encounter. And so what the authors of this article are suggesting here is not a creative interpretation of this law to suit their designs. It's theft, and it constitutes a federal crime under 18 U.S.C. sections 842H and 922 J. And frankly, it speaks volumes about the character of the leftist gun control policy uh, advocates and criminal justice reformers who will one day decry police corruption and abuse, as well as the often cavalier attitude of many police officers that believe themselves to be above the law and who will flagrantly violate the oath they take as public servants to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. And then, the very next day, these same people will actively encourage those very same police to engage in those very same reprehensible behaviors when dealing with people who have broken no law. So, with this, one has to ask, if it neither breaks my leg nor picks my pocket, what business is it of mine? Now, what kind of person 
can recognize that even in the most ideal circumstances, we cannot count on the police to be able to protect individuals from harm because all too often it is the police who are causing the harm we need protecting from. While also insisting that people be left completely helpless in the face of such harm and that those who refuse to voluntarily comply with their demands for an entirely helpless population should uh, have the very people causing that harm sent after them to enforce through violence, coercion, and deception their own victims' complete helplessness. I mean, this is really like telling a guy uh, being released from jail for assaulting his wife. If you go back home, don't bother looking for any of the guns you kept in your house. We confiscated them. We confiscated them all when we arrested you to make sure that you can never use them to threaten or harm your wife again. However, all that domestic abuser hears is, your wife is home alone and completely helpless. We made sure she has no useful means of defending herself against you should you feel like victimizing her again at any point. So this article now goes on to talk about how gun rights advocates who lean conservative would doubtless decry the state of affairs as lawless. I wonder why. Um, and they say liberals and civil libertarians have long said the same thing about qualified immunity, albeit as applied to a violation of others' rights. Their objections have largely been to police's repeated evasion of liability for using, in their view, unconstitutionally excessive force. So, uh, to break that down in a little bit plainer terms, anyone who dares have a different opinion than the author of this article deserves whatever violence may come to their rights, their life, or their property. And the article goes on here to say, If police begin to aggressively disarm citizens under the aegis of qualified immunity, its conservative-leaning defenders may worry less about meritless claims. Perhaps they will ally with liberals and civil libertarians in arguing for the qualified immunity's abolition. Or perhaps not. Either way, the Bruin decision will have scrambled qualified immunity's political violence. Going forward, the doctrine will either provide cover for left-leaning states to disarm potentially dangerous citizens, even in tension with the Second Amendment principles, or will be weakened, reinvigorating civil liability as a mechanism for policing the police. And it, it just, it cannot be overstated how truly sick and perverse this is. Now, I've always been pretty upfront, I think, here, uh, in both in this article and in past articles and videos, generally uh, about my feelings on this, that I support the complete uh, abolition of qualified immunity. And uh, in fact, I actually remain committed to the total abolition of public policing. Now, this was, of course, a position that the uh, left initially seemed to support people like myself on for just a moment back in 2020. Uh, this was, of course, until they realized that abolishing the police would require them to take personal responsibility for themselves and their defense. And if there's one thing we know leftists hate, 
It's personal responsibility and requirement to do for themselves anything that they believe they are entitled to have the government do for them. But I will say, if our only options are to either throw in one support with conservatives who want to put their faith in police as they exist now and who see no issue with the above-the-law protection police received under the doctrine of qualified immunity, or with the liberals who tend to share in a desire for radical criminal justice reform, knowing that they seem to take the same cavalier attitude to enforcing compliance from conservatives and gun rights supporters that slave masters seem to have when it came to enforcing compliance among their slaves. In that situation, I will take the conservative inequity over the liberal inequity every single time. All right, and that is all I really have for you guys here today. Thank you so much for joining me here uh, on Legalese. Uh, now, I just want to remind you guys, uh, I am going to probably be gone for a few more weeks from doing videos, so please take a moment, uh, go over to LegalEaseShow.com, sign up for my newsletter, and you can get all the articles that I am writing in the meantime. Uh, and then if you would just please take a moment, guys, and do all of those things that uh, help feed Al Gore's rhythm, uh, you know, smash that like button if you like this, hit the dislike button if you disliked it, uh, subscribe to the channel to get notifications, uh, and definitely leave me a comment down below. Let me know what you thought of uh, this topic or uh, this episode or any of, you know, anything we touched on here today or, well, I guess anything. You can let me know anything you want, but uh, preferably in relation to this episode. But anyways, if you guys would do that for me, I would uh, greatly appreciate it. And so, uh, until next time, this is Bob uh, signing out here on Legalese, talking about qualified immunity as gun control, and of course, as always, Cartago de Lenda Est. Like Glenn